Additional support for today's Heat Treat Radio episode is provided by Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry, offering the highest quality of calibration and testing services, and now Aerospace Compliance Software. If you're looking for excellent solutions to your pyrometry questions, go to www.atp-cal.com. Welcome to Heat Treat Radio. I'm your host, Doug Glenn, publisher of Heat Treat Today. In this episode, Andrew Bassett and I have our third and final conversation about AMS 2750F. Andrew Bassett is president of ATP and directly contributed his expertise to the latest revisions of AMS 2750. If you haven't heard the previous two episodes, you can find them by binging or Googling Heat Treat Radio or by simply typing www.heattreattoday.com slash radio into your browser. So now let's get started with Andrew Bassett. In the first episode, you and I did some talking about just the AMS 2750 generally, what it was, how it's done, uh, uh, who was on the committee, obviously, uh, some of the the fact that it's not just a minor rewrite, but that it's a major rewrite. And then specifically in that first episode, we talked about thermocouples and calibration. And then once we were done with that, we went into the second uh, episode where we talked about system accuracy tests and, uh, you know, spent a good bit of time. And Andrew, I wanted you again, just very briefly, tell our listeners who was involved on the committee. I know that from our perspective, uh, the good folks over at GeoCorp had James LaFollette on the committee. Uh, I know Doug Schuler from Pyro Consulting was on there, but who, who else was on the committee that was responsible for putting this uh, revision F together? Sure. So we had uh, Marcel Cooperman uh, from PRI Performance Review Institute. He is one of the uh, uh, lead staff engineers for uh, NADCAP Heat Treat Task Group. Um, we had Doug Matson from Boeing. Uh, Doug Matson, basically right after the release of BevF, uh, went into retirement. But he's still been very active uh, on any questions that have been arising uh, uh, with the RevF. And uh, so he's still st- still retired, but he's still in the loop with the, the specification. Um, we had Brian Reynolds from Arconic. Uh, again, we were looking for various people within the industry. So Brian Reynolds um, gave us a perspective from the raw material suppliers. And then we also had Cyril Bernal from Saffron Aerospace. He is, um, we wanted to get some European um, influence on the specification, and he's also the uh, task group chairman for Heat Treat. So we had a, a good, well-rounded group of guys, um, you know, experts on this to you know try to get this next revision put together. And and yourself, of course. Let's not forget that to state <laughs> yep. explicitly. Yep. You were involved. So. <laughs> I was involved with it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't you can't wash your hands completely of this. I want you to know. No, no. I always <laughs> like to say that I wrote the good stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Good for you. Uh, and then before we jump into TUS, uh, TUS, the specifics, some of the major changes there, I want to just hit briefly on on uh, training. You and I were talking about this just before we hit the record button. The fact of the matter is there are several different training courses out there. Obviously, these three episodes ought to be helpful to you. A direct call to yourself or to aerospace testing and pyrometry probably wouldn't be a bad idea if somebody needed help with it. 
And does ATP, do they also provide a, a training course or... Yes, we do. We we um, we've always prided ourselves on the you know providing AMS twenty seven fifty training. Um, our training has always been customized to what our customers' requirements um, would be. Um, so every course is not the same. So we like to take it more than just AMS twenty seven fifty. You have to remember, there's other aerospace primes out there that have their own pyrometry requirements. For uh, for instance, GE Aviation has their own pyrometry requirements, P ten TF three or uh, Rolls Royce has their own pyrometry requirements, or Pratt and Whitney might have some other things that need to be addressed. Um, so we we actually will sit down with our customers prior to any kind of training and kind of take out the information that's needed, and then we perform the training on site at our customer at, at the client's facilities. So if there's any other like questions that arise, hey, I'm not sure you're talking about this SAT stuff. We can. What I always like to say, let's go for a field trip and we can walk right out to the customer's equipment and kind of demonstrate how to do, let's say, a proper SAT or proper calibration. And again, we'll cover various, um, you know, different specifications. For instance, like one thing we, we like to do is kind of find out what types of heat treating they're doing. If they're strictly a vacuum heat treating, I'm not going to talk about any of the aluminum requirements. There's, you know, there's some pyrometry requirements when it comes to aluminum, but we'll talk about, you know, vacuum gauge calibration, which is not covered under 2750, but it's a, that's covered under AMS 2769. So again, each one of our courses are customized to what our clients' needs are. So yeah, they can feel free to reach out to us. Um, we, we, there's myself and Colin Thomas, who's the next NADCAP auditor, are the two instructors for the course, and uh, we're more than willing to help out with that at any time. Okay, super. No, that's great. And just so everyone knows, at the end of this podcast, we will mention a couple of other uh, companies and resources that you can go to for training on AMS 2750F. Uh, I would like to mention, though, just a little self-serving note that if I, I did this with Google just a minute ago, I don't know that it'll work on everybody's location and whatnot, but I Googled AMS 2750F and Heat Treat Today came up as the second item uh, with uh, a article that we posted back in July 21st called AMS 2750, uh, AMS 2750F Expert Analysis, of which, Andrew, you were one of the contributors. We had five contributors, I believe, to that article. Uh, Doug, Schu- or, uh, yeah, Doug Schuler being one of them. Uh, Peter Sherwin from Eurotherm being another. Yourself being one, and we had and we had two other. Jim Oaks from uh, SSI, and one other. Uh, uh, Jason uh, Schultz, I think. Jason Schultz, yes. Thank you very much. I was just just pulling it up to remember because sure. my mind didn't didn't pull it up. But yeah, Jason Schultz, yourself, Peter Sherwin, Jim Oaks, and Doug Schuler all commented on what they felt. I think you had to answer two or three questions and we compiled that. So that's, a, that's also a good resource to go to if you, if you have a moment to do so. so yeah, great group of guys, good experts on that. Yeah, super. All right, so let's jump into temperature uniformity surveys. And as we've done in the past, are basically what, I, what we're doing is asking you, hey, Andrew, what were the major changes in this area, so we've broken it down uh, into under TUSs into five basic questions. Okay, the first one let's hit on now. So, looking for the major changes in modifications and repairs section. Tell us about that. Okay, sure. So, in Rev E, uh, the previous revision, there was 
uh, two sections broken out for called uh, furnace modifications and furnace repairs. And we listed, um, and of course, we put the caveat in there, but not limited to the following things. And so, you know, if you um, replace the hot zone in a vacuum furnace or uh, you change thermocouple locations, these would trigger uh, a major modification where you'd have to do an initial uniformity survey. So we basically took out the repairs function and just left in modification. So if any kind of preventive maintenance or some sort of maintenance function that is done that would be considered a repair, it's going to be up to the user's quality organization to uh, determine if any other testing is going to be required. So, for instance, if they do, let's say, replace a door seal around the door, um, quality is going to have to get involved and say, hey, do we need to do a uniformity survey? And what I always tell uh, uh, suppliers out there that are complying with this, there's they, you know, get get with your your maintenance team because the maintenance teams typically will know if you know whatever repair they did will have a major modif- you know a major impact to maybe a uniformity survey. So at that standpoint, um, you know, repairs will have to be documented as always, and then quality is going to have to sign off. Hey, do we need another calibration, an SAT or a TUS? So um, we've kind of given it. We put the onus back on the, the users now to determine if a a test uh, needs to be conducted. So, and then and then they're going to have to defend that if they have an audit. Um, some of the changes we made to major modifications. So, there was always this. Um, uh, it was kind of silent in the previous revisions of the spec, but um, it was kind of mentioned that hey, when you move a piece of thermal processing equipment from you know we move it from one corner of the building and we're going to move it over to the other corner of, of, of the building, that you. Are we, you're, you're going to be required to do an initial uniformity survey. And so I brought up to the team, I'm like, well, now these days, they actually make uh, furnaces and ovens with wheels on them. Right. Uh, this, this is for cellular manufacturing. So, you know, if they have wheels on them to be, you know, moved at different location, I think it will, again, will have to be on the onus of the quality department to determine if a, another uniformity or initial survey, maybe they just do a, a quick test on the furnace to make sure it's, you know, within the same realm as, as the previous testing. So we did say that, you know, initial TUS may be waived if the furnace is designed to be portable. Um, some of the other major changes we add, uh, modifications, we said, um, if people were always thinking if you've changed your control thermocouple, uh, you know, when you replace it with a new one that you have to do an initial survey. And it's all, we always said that, no, you don't have to do that as long as you put it back in the documented location. But I did see a, a problem with this when I said, hey, if they change the type of sensor, you know, basically the thickness of the sensor, maybe they went from a, a 316th uh, sensor down to a 1.8 sensor. Well, the 1.8 sensor is going to be more sensitive to temperature change, and that could have a major impact on the uniformity. Or if they went from, you know, uh, a hot junction that was not exposed to an exposed junction, which again increases the sensitivity. So we added in that and is a major modification. If you do change that type of scenario on your thermocouples, then yeah, you better do an initial uniformity survey. And then the lastly, uh, since you know, we're getting more and more advanced control systems, uh, if you change the PLC logic you know, for those type of uh, the PLCs that you know control, let's say a vacuum furnace or other any type of thermal process equipment, if you change the logic in the in the uh, PLC, then yeah, you better do an initial uniformity survey. So we kind of beefed up a little bit of the major modifications to address some of the newer technology that's out there. Okay, but you said now you said a lot of that was up to the quality department. Is that true? With the, for example, we went from a hot junction to not. Is that still up to quality, no. or is it? 
that that that's still now under the that's now been changed under the major modifications that would trigger an initial uniformity okay, survey. So, so okay. it, right. So that's not a so changing from the different type of sensors is not necessarily it's not a repair. That's a modification. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Very good. All right, super. So how about uh, the way vacuum furnaces, let's move on to number two here, the way the vacuum furnaces, uh, the TUSs need to be performed there. What were the major changes? Okay, it was really only one major change that we, we changed to um, for when you conduct a survey on a vacuum furnace. Before, all you had to do is just do your typical uniformities within your temperature ranges for your qualified range of use. And your vacuum pressure had to be, you know, if, if you had a diffusion pump, it just had to get below one micron and, and, and just do your survey. But then um, I think it was Doug Shula that brought up the uh, idea that said, hey, you know, if people use a backfill gas or use partial pressure, maybe we need to have one test under partial pressure. And at first we got a lot of pushback from the suppliers on that saying, well, this is going to cost us extra money and we have to do an extra test on this. And we said, no, 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 this is just part of your routine uh, temperature uniformity survey schedule. And we're just saying at least on an annual basis, you choose your one single, you know, a single operating temperature within a defined partial pressure range that you use during production. We just want a survey done that way. And you get to choose what gas you're using, if you're using argon or nitrogen. And the, the, the thought process behind this was, you know, if you had a uh, needle valve that maybe was leaking and creating a cold spot in your furnace and you didn't know about it, we'd like to, you know, it's kind of more of a preventive thing to say, hey, you know, are those needle valves leaking and are you getting a, you know, a, a cold spot in your furnace that you don't know about? So that's all we're asking. It's just for one survey to be done in any in one of your single uh, set point temperatures with any partial pressure gas in the range that you define as your partial pressure. So, you know, once we explained it to the, that way, it, we were able to get over that hump and move forward. Right. It wasn't it wasn't as onerous as it initially sounded, apparently. So that's yeah, great. yeah. It, it, I think the wording in the original draft, it's, you know, stated that it, it sounded like it was going to be an extra survey. And I can understand the pushback from the suppliers. But uh, once we explained it, no, that's not an extra survey. It's just one during your regular routine yeah, survey. Replaces another, it replaces another one. So Correct. Normal. Correct. Okay. All right. Okay. Question three. Location of the test thermocouples when you're with what in, inside under under three cubic feet. Okay, so this was this was something um, I've always had an issue with in um, in AMS twenty seven fifty uh, in the previous revision. It uh, how it stated was that uh, when you have a furnace less than three cubic feet, you can do a survey with um, five sensors, and it said the five sensors shall be placed in the corners. Well, in a cylindrical furnace, you have eight corners. So what five corners do you choose? So my understanding when uh, NADCAP PRI was teaching their pyrometry course, it was basically the central plane of the furnace. So you would have uh, two thermocouples in the front that were in the center plane and then two in the back in the center plane and one in the center. And I said, well, that doesn't really work so well because um, you're not really getting what's on the top of the furnace or the bottom of the furnace. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So what we ended up doing is putting uh, some new diagrams in the specification that showed that uh, you're going to go opposite corners. So let's say you're going to put one thermocouple in the top left corner in the front, and then diagonally across from that would be one in the bottom right corner. And then in the back, you would reverse those in the back. So we are covering the back, you know, the top and bottom of the furnace, and, and the last uh, thermocouple will be in the center. So we kind of spelled out 
a little bit better way of testing these smaller furnaces. In a cylindrical furnace, it's stated that those thermocouples should be 180 degrees apart. And again, the NADCAP course would basically put five thermocouples in the center plane of a cylindrical furnace. And this we said, no, we want two thermocouples on the top, directly 180 degrees apart from each other. And then two on the bottom, again, 180 degrees apart from each other, but they should be uh, offset 90 degrees from the top one. So you're getting a better uh, test of your whole work zone dimension. So um, I believe those diagrams, I've always been doing these testing uh, with these small furnaces in in this method, because that's actually an older requirement from an old Boeing specification. The old BAC 5621 actually spelled it out this way. So we kind of adopted the old Boeing requirement of these smaller furnaces uh, now to show a better um, test for your these small furnaces now. Right, right. And uh, and let's be clear, that is for three cubic feet or less. I assume over Correct. three cubic feet, you're still got a one, two, three, four, five, seven, what, how many point? You're still nine, doing nine all couples. Yeah, so greater than two, uh, three cubic feet and less than 225 cubic feet, you still got the nine sensors. And once you nine get above sensors, nine, yeah. uh, 200, yeah, once you get above uh, 225 cubic feet, and then there's uh, the formulas in place in, in 2750F that, you know, it spells out how many more thermocouples. But yeah. I don't believe we go allow it go past 40 thermocouples in some of those big monster furnaces. <laughs> yeah, that should be enough. 40 ought to get it. Sure. <laughs> In just one second, I'm going to ask Andrew about something relatively rare called a radiation test survey for aluminum alloy process furnaces, as well as other documentation requirements. But first, let's talk about streamlining your aerospace compliance process. Aerospace testing in pyrometry can help with their newly released aerospace compliance software. This software is a customized pyrometry platform that streamlines the process of achieving accurate and timely electronic records for all of your instrumentation, calibration, and testing needs. The software is capable of not only AMS 2750F, but it also covers other industry prime specification like Boeing's BAC 5621, Safran's PR0011, General Electric Aviation's P10TF3, and Rolls-Royce's RRP54000. And it can be customized to a unique user requirement. You can make this thing sing and dance to whatever tune you got. It also nails down CQI9 requirements, by the way. Find out how the experts at Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry can help take the mystery and worry out of aerospace compliance efforts. Contact Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry today about aerospace compliance software by going to www.atp-cal.com slash aerospace-compliance-software. Now, let's get back to Andrew Bassett. So let's talk about aluminum for a little bit here. We've got uh, mm-hmm. radiation test surveys and aluminum yes. furnaces, uh, anything above eight, 800F. Let's talk about that. Yeah, this is actually a surprise that this didn't get some more pushback when we were putting the drafts out there. So originally, um, in previous revisions, it said all aluminum solution heat treating furnaces where the uh, heat source is in the wall, located in the wall, that you had to do what's called a radiation test survey. Mm -hmm. But we changed the requirement to say all aluminum alloy thermal processing equipment used above 800. 
also with the heat source located in the furnace wall, ceiling, or floor. So this is a game changer now because this will now put in those aluminum uh, vacuum braze furnaces into play. This was typically only a requirement for solution heat treating of aluminum alloys, but now it's going to be for aluminum brazers. And I'm very curious of how this is going to work. So a, a radiation test survey uh, is basically you have to have one panel, uh, 6061 uh, aluminum panel, uh, that's 12 inches square uh, with a test thermocouple peened into the middle of it. And there's one panel for en- uh, for every 10 cubic feet of wall area. And basically what we're looking for is that uh, if, uh, if there's any kind of direct radiation of uh, heat to an aluminum panel, your panels are going to get hot, extremely hot. It's good. You're, what they're looking for is eutectic melting. So, so, you know, all aluminum solution heat treat furnaces, it's required by AMS 2770, which is the aluminum processing spec that says, you know, if you're processing aluminum, there can't be any direct radiation of, to the parts. But in a vacuum furnace, how is it heated? Direct radiation. Yeah, it's all radiation. So, exactly right. So now I'm very curious of how this is going to play out for those those suppliers. Um, and again, I was really surprised there wasn't a whole lot of pushback from, uh, you know, the aluminum vacuum uh Brace facilities that have these type of furnaces are now going to be required to do this test. So it's going to be interesting how that plays out. Uh, you know, once once twenty seven fifty is in full force for everybody. Yeah, and I guess we ought to say it's not always radiation in the in a, in a vacuum furnace. Assume if you don't have backfill gases, okay, it's going to be all radiation. But if you've got some uh, convective heat going on with backfill gases, that's that's possible. But okay, doesn't doesn't change yep. the point that we're making here. So so something for people to be aware of if you're if you're uh, working with a, a vacuum furnace above eight hundred F, you're doing a, any type of aluminum, then you've got you've got a new requirement to do this radiation test. Yeah, it's it's the change of the words of solution heat treating to all alu- all aluminum all alloy thermal processing. Gotcha. Yep. Right. 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 Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. Uh, how about last question? Uh, last question of the five here. I'm sure we've got some other wrap up things to talk about, but uh, documentation requirements. You mentioned here there's uh, there's been some changes there. Tell us about those. Yeah, so we've made a, a few change uh, changes to the the documentation requirement. The you know basically from the standpoint of uh, Rev E, uh, we left everything from the original uh, requirements in there. But people were unfamiliar with um, right after the section that talked about documentation. Um, and the funny thing is, we had to change it from reports to documentation. Uh, there was somebody that said, "Hey, we we don't want to call it a report because it connotates that it has to be all in one package. We want to call it documentation." So we appeased that one. But anyway, um, in in Rev uh, E, there was always a requirement to. Um, it was not part of the documentation records, but should be accessible on site. So which were the control instrument tuning parameters. It's the, the PIDs or the proportional uh, band reset rate, depending on the instrument manufacturers, that those had to be documented for each thermal processing equipment. Um, so we said, hey, you know, I think this is being missed because there's a lot of facility, you know, places that I've been to where they don't even know what the tuning parameters are. So we said, all right, from now on, you're going to have to document that in your TUS reports. Uh, you're also required to have a diagram of your TUS thermocouple location. That was always been a requirement, but we also now require you to show where the control thermocouple is placed and if you have any recording sensors. So if you have type A instrument, A or C instrumentation that have the high and low, those would have to be denoted on the diagram for your, your furnace. Um, 
uh, or on the you know for part of the documentation package. Um, so we need to, to want to make sure that the supplier is aware that they just they don't we just don't need to see where your nine thermocouples are located. We also need to see where the control is and any applicable uh, other sensors in the furnace that qualify for A, B, or C. Um, we also want to find out too what type of atmosphere that is being used in the furnace. Is it air? Is it a vacuum? Is it are you putting it under carburizing? You know, if, you know, endo. You know, you have to list the atmosphere now. Uh, that was done during the testing as well. And then we're also saying that the TUS uh, test instrument that you're using, you have to um, let us know what the um, correction factors are. Even if you electronically apply them to the TUS instruments, you're allowed to put in the correction factors prior to starting a TUS um, for your test instrument. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's already been put into the recorder. I don't need to document it. We're saying, well, we still need to know what that correction factor is. So, um, so we need to, you know, you have to document what those correction factors are. Um, two other things that are, are, are new to the documentation requirements. So if you have types A or C instrumentation, again, with the hot and cold thermocouples uh, placed in there from the last uh, uniformity survey, there shall be an analysis analysis done to make sure that those locations have not changed. So if you, um, there's some requirements in, in Rev, Rev F that say, hey, if your uh, uniformity survey becomes ha is, is half your uniformity tolerance. In other words, if you're testing for plus or minus 10 and your final results come out less than plus or minus five, you can just make an easy statement. Uh, my survey is within plus or minus five. Uh, no relocation of my hot and cold sensors are required. Um, but you have to do an analysis of those uh, those two sensors for types A and C. The other um, this deals with more of um, shaker type furnaces or continuous type furnaces. We call them continuous or semi continuous furnaces. You have to list out what the traversing speeds are during your uniformity survey. Mm -hmm. So you know whatever maybe your bump rate is for your shaker or the traverse rate, and then you're going to have to recalculate what your work zone is. I mean, with a with a continuous type furnace, obviously your work zone will shrink the faster the belt goes through the furnace. Uh -huh, right. So we, we, there needs to be a recalculation of the work zone dimensions based on your your the survey based on what the the belt speed should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And then lastly, like we've done with all the other documentation, if 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 your service is being performed by a third party, uh, the quality organization by of the third party must also approve the uh, reports as well. So those are really the, the major changes when it came to the documentations for uh, temperature uniformity surveys. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So, so basically we've hit on three, three major areas, obviously that the first episode thermocouples and calibration, second episode system actually tests this episode, temperature uniformity surveys is there any other odds and ends that you think our listeners should know about? Absolutely. There's a couple last minute things, you know, towards the end of the specification already passed all the, you know, the testing requirements. So the biggest pain uh, when it came to Rev E is that we had the requirement for rounding. And that was to the ASTM E29 uh, method. And so that caused a lot of problems. I think we really uh, put a number on all the thermocouple suppliers because typically the thermocouple suppliers, when they're doing their calibration of thermocouples, put everything into an Excel. Well, Excel rounds 0.5 up, like we all learned in grade school. But E29 doesn't like that. They like to have, um, if your next significant digit is odd, it stays the same. Or excuse me, it rounds up. If it's even, it stays the same. 
So that put a little hamper on all of the thermocouple guys, and we kind of really didn't think that one through. So now we changed it in RevF. So the methods that you can use is ASTM E29 using the absolute method. So that still can stay the same. Or you can use an equivalent international standard such as ISO 80001 Rule B, which is 0.5 round up. Or you can round to any commercial spreadsheet. In other words, 0.5 round up. So as long as you have documented procedures and you have to use it in a consistent manner, we've, I shouldn't say we've relaxed the rules, but now you can choose what kind of rounding method you want to use. Um, and we wanted to make sure we spelled out, too, that um, all the tolerances in, in 2750F, if you look at Rev F compared to Rev E, all the tolerance requirements, let's say we used to say uh, plus or minus 10. Now it says plus or minus 10.0. So it's an absolute. So if you have, let's say, a survey that you do that's 10.2 and you want to try to round that down, you can never round anything back into compliance. So if something does fall out of tolerance by a tenth of a degree um, or, you know, whatever, it, you cannot use the rounding function to bring it into compliance. Right. So that right. was – I just want to make sure that was spelled out. We um, – we adopted, or not adopted, but we addressed a hole that was left in Rev E on your uh, test interval extensions. Uh, previous re uh, revisions, we did forgot about uh, adding bi-monthly and uh, every four months, um, how many days you can go past a extension for a due date. So we finally addressed that in this revision. I uh, believe that is now, used to be table 10, now it's table 25. And the only thing that's uh, added onto this is if you do use an extension for any uh, reason, that there must be a written justification approved by the user's quality organization. It could be a simple, hey, my test came due on Sunday. Uh, we came in on Monday and did the testing. You're just going to have to write a note saying, you know, due date was Sunday. We came in and did it Monday. So you just have to write some justification of that. And lastly, the, I think this is a big thing uh, as well, um, is under the quality assurance provision. That's basically the, the section that says, hey, what happens if you have a pyrometry failure and so on? We didn't change anything in there except two years after the release of RevF, any third-party pyrometry service uh, organization shall be qualified, uh, must have a quali uh, quality system approved to ISO 17025. So the, also the scope of accreditation shall include laboratory standards and or the field services applicable. So third-party service providers two years after the release will ha now have to be 17025 accredited. If they are, there, there's also no uh, procedural oversight from the supplier. So for instance, we're 17025 accredited for our laboratory. We actually hold two different accreditations, one for our laboratory and one for our field ser service work for calibrations, for uniformity surveys and system accuracy testing. Now, since we are third-party accredited, our clients will not be required to have any oversight on us, which I, you know, personally, I don't think that's the best option. I think the supplier should still be able to audit us and look at our procedures to make sure it's complying with the, the industry standards. But, you know, according to RevF, there is no more oversight if we're third-party accredited. Um, I wasn't a big fan of adding this in. Again, you know, you would think people that are 17025 like ourselves would be uh, happy to have, you know, make this in there, might weed out some other companies. But I've actually seen some really, I've worked with some really good smaller shops, you know, you know, two men, a father and son that's located out in New York and then a gentleman over in California that's just a single, you know, one guy. And these guys are very versed in the specification and do things right. And unfortunately, now they're going to have to be 17025 accredited. And I talked to one of them. He said, this may put me out of business. I, you know, 
I, I, I don't know if I can afford swinging this. You know, I do a good job. I said, I know I'm trying to fight for you on this, but it, it ended up going in. Um, and at least we put the caveat that they have two years to get it done. So it's not something immediate. Yeah. That is the danger when you start, you know, requiring certain, let's say accreditations, licenses, whatever, you know, it's, sure. it's typically the small guy that takes a beating. That's too bad, but that's, that's the way it is. So for the end user, the, uh, I shouldn't be so flippant about that. Should I? I mean, it is too bad. <laughs> <laughs> it is too bad. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. I mean, I, I, I really struggled. I mean, originally the first draft was going to be immediately. And I said, no, yeah. let's, let's put a, let's put a moratorium yeah. on it for at least two years. So people can gear yeah. up for that. Yeah. Well, so the, I guess the, the, the moral of the story here for the end user is you need to, within two years, you need to be asking your third party, uh, uh, survey companies, your accreditations uh, folks, whoever coming in doing your pyrometry and whatnot, if they are, if they do have this 17025, otherwise, Correct. you know, sooner or later they don't. Okay. Well, very good. Anything else? Any other odds and ends? No, no, but I just, I, well, the last thing I want to add about the 17025 real quick is this is only for third-party suppliers because that's been some questions that we've received is, hey, we do our pyrometry internally. Do I have to go get 17025? No, you don't. It's only for third-party suppliers. Third parties. Okay, very good. That's good to know. All right, so let's do, let's wrap up with a couple of quick things here. Uh, training. If, uh, if people, if there are uh, listeners out there who want additional training, we talked at the beginning of this episode about what aerospace testing and pyrometry, your company, Andrew, what you guys can do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to list a couple other places I believe have training. And then if you know of any others you're, you're uh, comfortable mentioning, please feel free to do so. I do know you mentioned actually PRI does some sort of training here on this. Uh, I believe a good friend of Heatree today, Jason Schultz up at uh, Conrad Cassick, I believe they have something and I'm sure they can do custom. I don't know if they have standard courses or not, but I'm sure they can do some uh, custom stuff. And I believe that uh, Super Systems also has some sort of training on this. I, be I believe Geocorp does or, or will. Uh, but those are the only sources I know. You correct me if I'm wrong on any of those, and let me know if there's any other places uh, that people could get training. Wasn't familiar with Super Systems or GeoCorp, but the, you know everybody's yeah getting into the bandwagon. But the other uh, course I would uh, also know of is uh, Doug Schuler's Pyro Consulting as well. Right, right. He, he does teach a, an advanced uh, pyrometry course. Okay, super, super. All right. And then if people, first of all, Andrew, we really appreciate your time doing these three episodes. So if people want to get a hold of you, what are you, what are you comfortable giving out? We don't want to give out your cell phone unless you're comfortable with it, but uh, certainly emails and things of that sort. <laughs> sure. They can, uh, you can give me a call on our office line, which is 844-828-7225. That's um, supposed to actually, if you press one, it's supposed to actually ring my cell phone, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. So you can try the office line or you can uh, reach me at, uh, through email, which is a Bassett, B-A-S-S-E-T-T -T, at A-T-P hyphen C-A-L.com. Uh, or you can uh, hit us up on the website, www.atp-cal.com. And you can just hit one of the uh, uh, emails of support and uh, let me know what you're looking for and from pyrometry training or anything else for that matter. And uh, we're more than happy to reach out to you. Great. All right. So just to repeat some of that, we've got the office number 844-828-7225, extension 1. 
could get yes. straight to you potentially. Yes. Yeah. And then email a Bassett B A S S E T T at ATP hyphen C A L dot com would also get you there. And of course that same uh, domain can get you to the website. So if you're interested in reaching out to Andrew, please do that. And uh, of course, I'm always willing to take emails and, and put you directly in touch with Andrew if you'd like. That's Doug at heattreattoday.com. Happy to do that. So, okay, Andrew, end of end of episode number three. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I'm sure all the folks out there listening uh, appreciate it as well. So thanks for taking your time. Absolutely, Doug. This has been a pleasure doing this and uh, I appreciate you having me on here for this. We hope you enjoyed today's Heat Treat Radio episode. If you want to listen to the two previous episodes with Andrew Bassett on AMS 2750F compliance, Bing or Google Heat Treat Radio Andrew Bassett. That's B-A-S-S-E-T-T. Or simply type www.heattreattoday.com slash radio into your browser. Then search the list for Andrew Bassett. Again, if you want to reach out to AMS 2750 expert Andrew Bassett, his contact telephone number is 844-828-7225, extension number one. You can also send him an email at abassett at atp-cal.com. And again, Bassett is B-A-S-S-E-T-T. For more information on ATP, Their website is www.atp-cal.com. You can also send an email directly to me, and I'll put you in touch with Andrew. My email is doug at heattreattoday.com. And we're always interested in new Heat Treat radio topics. So send me an email with what you find fascinating so that we can cover it in a future Heat Treat radio episode. Additionally, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode, send me an email and I'll be in touch. Again, my email is doug at heattreattoday.com. Looking for more heat treat resources, perhaps in the medical or energy industries? Bing or Google heat treat today and we should be the first result that you see. In less than two weeks, our quarter four print edition will be released on our website and in your mailbox near you check out this digital and print edition, which is chock full of fascinating articles dealing with medical and energy heat treating. Don't agonize over complying with industry standards like AMS 2750F or CQI9. Ask Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry for their newly released aerospace compliance software. Heat Treat Today would like to thank Aerospace Testing and Pyrometry for their support of this broadcast. Find out more at www.atp-cal.com. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advance written permission from Heat Treat Today. Jonathan Lloyd is Heat Treat Radio's audio producer and created and mixed most of the music that you heard today. See his professional work at www. JonathanLloydMusic.com. Thank you, Jonathan. Bethany Funk is Heat Treat Today's podcast editor. Bethany, thank you very much. And I'm your host, Doug Glenn. Thank you for listening. <laughs>